title of today's sermon is Established for the Truth, and it's taken from 2 Peter 1, verses 11 through 21. I'm excited about preaching from the scriptures this morning. What an awesome privilege and responsibility. So let us ask God to to guide and direct us in this portion of 2 Peter. Would you bow with me? Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for brothers and sisters in Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to live and breathe and move in this world. And though things sadden us, Father, we always have the hope and the expectation of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to take us to be with himself. In light of that, Lord, teach us, equip us to live effectively in this world until he does return, we pray. In his name, amen. Well, here we are. It's July. The presidential election is less than four months away. Wow. And our choices. Hillary Clinton or the Donald. Not much of a choice when it comes to Christian character. Sounds like we're stuck between a rock and a hard place, between the devil and the deep blue sea, out of the frying pan and into the fire. You're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. The lesser of two evils or the worst of two evils. You get the idea. Polls show us that voters on both sides of the great divide are more skeptical of their party's candidate than ever, especially of their character and their ability to run the country. In one recent poll, a thousand adults were quizzed about who they thought or what they thought about their presidential hopefuls and their decision-making abilities in light of their all their recent controversies. A whopping 63% of those polled said that Hillary Clinton was a liar about her emails in Benghazi. 57% of Americans believe that Hillary puts America's security at risk. And on the other side of the divide, 83% said that the Donald's comments on the partiality of the Indian, Indiana judge because of his Mexican heritage was inappropriate. And 71% said that Donald's decision to revoke the, pres- the press credentials of the organizations he felt were inaccurate was also inappropriate. So both Clinton and Trump get very low marks on integrity and problem-solving. Almost half the folks thinks that, think that Trump's name for Hillary, Crooked Hillary, is a fair characterization of her. And almost half the respondents agreed that Clinton's characterization of Trump as a fraud is fair. Oh, my. You think that's bad? Wait till you get to what people think about religious leaders in our country today. They are trusted even less than the politicians. A Gallup poll recently done shows that a majority of Americans rate religious leaders' honesty at the bottom of professions, right there with used car salesmen. And dare I say it, bud, lawyers. Gallup attributed the steep decline in the trust of religious leaders to the myriad of scandals that have plagued us in the news. One editor of Gallup noted, if views of a certain profession have changed, it's usually a function of the scandals that surround it. For example, the Catholic priests' abuse stories with children in the 2000s. The evangelical world and its scandals. The Mark Driscoll plagiarism case in Seattle, the president of Vision Forum in an extramarital affair, 
All of these things have a negative impact on the way people think about their spiritual leaders. But this isn't a new thing. This isn't a new thing. Back in the first century, religious leaders were also suspect, especially those, excuse me, of a new sect called Christianity. It was accused of being filled with fables, myths, and total fabrications in order to get the naive to follow. The other competitors in the religious marketplace jumped on the bandwagon by attacking Christians while they offered their own twists and turns on truth. Obviously, Peter became concerned with the spiritual welfare of the early church. The folks, the common folks in the early church, Peter, being aware that his end was soon approaching, sits down to pen this epistle that we look at today. He wanted his readers to remember the important truths that he had been sharing with them his entire ministry. His goal was to reassure the saved that the word of God indeed was trustworthy. Now remember, 40 years prior to this writing, the Lord Jesus had ascended from the Mount of Olives, where where he will descend in the future, and Peter was there with him. 40 years is a, a relatively short period of time. But in that time, difficulties, attacks had arisen and overwhelmed the fledgling church. This attack, these persecutions, were fueled by the Roman government, as well as the false teachers of Greek mysticism. Well, the, the false teachers had produced a number of doctrines that conflicted with the early church and taught that which was taught by the apostles. They produced a list of dubious doctrines, taking the Bible and twisting it. Maybe you've heard of some of them, maybe you haven't. Adoptionism, docetism, Nestorism, I could go on. But the most infamous of all of these I, I know you've heard of is called Gnosticism. Gnosticism taught that man's divine soul was trapped in the material world that had been created by an imperfect God. So they vilified the human body and all of the material world. They believed that the spiritual world trumped the material world, and eventually the spiritual would destroy all that was material. The only thing left would be that which is spiritual. They possessed a gnosis, a higher knowledge, that was only known by a few Gnostic mystics. It was this that Peter was trying to combat. He believed that the best defense against false teaching was living a godly life. If people could just see vibrant Christians living around them, growing in their faith, then they would be much less likely to adopt a counterfeit Christianity or cult. What was true then is also true today. We're surrounded by false teachers who seduce religious people, because they don't know their Bibles. They are prone to these attacks 
of false teachers because they rely upon their experiences rather than the sure word of God, which Peter talks about in this text. It's very dangerous to build one's spiritual life on the subjective experiences of the here and now. So Peter is determined to demonstrate the importance to his fellow believers of knowing the word of God. For the believer who knows what he believes and why he believes it will be very difficult to deceive with lies. Peter will camp camp here on the absolute reliability and truth of the word of God. He does this by tracing it back to its very origins. He shares with his readers three ways in which they can arm themselves against the attacks of the charlatans. And these are just as valid today as they were in the day that Peter wrote. First, they must be continually reminded over and over again of the truth and why it's true. You see, when the pressures of life come upon us, they cause us to tend to forget the most important things that we know are true. So we must be reminded of the truth consistently, constantly. Secondly, we must learn and know these truths for ourselves. They just can't be spoon-fed to us by pastors and Sunday school teachers. Our minds must be retrained to think biblically and not worldly. You see, our behavior springs from those things that we know and deeply hold within our hearts and minds. Godly behavior is a matter of brainwashing, if you will, in the scriptures. One truth that Peter talks about is the need to memorize the word of God, to meditate upon it to make it one's own inner conviction and belief. Because it is only inner conviction and belief that is then transferred into action. Thirdly, we must establish ourselves in the truth. It's easy to fall for error if you are not established in the truth. We are prime candidates for the twists and turns that the Cults and isms will play upon the truth. Such distortions should not surprise us. We saw the first of it way back in the Garden of Eden, remember? Eve was deceived by a lie. The devil will do anything to undermine your faith in the simplicity of the grace of God. Well, with that is our introduction. Would you turn with me? 2 Peter, chapter 1. We pick up where we left off last week in verse 12. Now, if you miss a sermon, you can get them on our Lacey Chapel website. Or if you're on Facebook with me, I always send out the sermon by way of Facebook. All you do is have to just keep clicking on the buttons and you will eventually get it. That's the key. We hear the heart of Peter in this text. His concern for the people that he was close to, the people that he loved. So let's look at what he writes, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. This can be found on page 1,215 of the Pew Bible. As I read the text, I can almost hear the words of Jesus spoken to Peter way back when on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. Do you remember those? Do you remember Jesus' last words to Peter? He said, feed my sheep. Feed my 
Sheep, feed my lambs. Peter was going to do whatever he could do to fulfill that assignment, that task that the Lord had given to him. And here he was, just before he was about to be martyred, and what does he want to do? He wants to feed the sheep. Looking at verse 12. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind, to remind, to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth, which is present with you. Notice how this verse begins. It begins with therefore in the New American Standard. If you're using the NKG, NKJV, it says for this reason. So, Those words point you back to the previous section, especially verse 11, where Peter speaks about the believer's privilege of someday entering into the millennial kingdom. Remember I talked about that? Versus the rapture. He must remind the believers, remind the believers of these things. He does so three times in three verses. You know what? I'm kind of forgetful, aren't you? I tend to forget a lot of things. My wife's name, what I had for dinner 15 minutes ago. The truth is we're all forgetful. And the one thing that we don't forget is rock songs from 50 years ago. It comes on the radio and you're singing along with the tune, aren't you? But spiritual truth? That's easy to forget. Real easy to forget. So so Peter says here, I will always remind you. You know you need somebody around you like Peter reminding you of the truth. That's hopefully why you come to Lacey Chapel. In verse 13, he says, I will stir you up by way of reminder. In verse 15, he says, you will be able to recall all of these things to mind. He's going to continue to repeat these things again and again, despite the fact that he says, even though you already know them. There are a lot of things we need to be reminded of. Some of us need to be reminded of the speed limit. I like it when they have those flashing signs that tell you how fast you're going, and you can immediately hit the brake, right? Unless you're with Sue, and then it's like, honey, can't you go a little faster? We need to be reminded of the right foods to eat. You know, don't you love a hot dog, a hamburger, or something laden with calories? Mmm, mmm. Just thinking about it. All those treasures that we had this morning brought for by our wonderful brother and sister over here. They were awesome, weren't they? We need to be reminded about exercising. There's a lot of things that are good to be reminded of. But the very best thing to be reminded of is the powerful word of God. Because we so often forget it. Even if you know this stuff, says Peter, you need to be reminded again over and over. And then to be established in the truth. The Greek word here is sterizo, S-T-E-R-I-Z-O, which means to establish, to strengthen, to be firm in the truth. Peter's main concern is that these people be able to stand firm against the heresy that is all around them. Paul says the exact same thing to the Thessalonians in chapter 3 of his epistle. I sent you Timothy, our brother and fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and to encourage you as to the faith. There it is, sterizio. Sterizo. 
And then just two chapters later, he uses the same word when he says this, so that he may establish, there is oh, your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Wow, that is awesome, is it not? It's the same exact thing that Peter's saying here. That you will be established, get it here, look back at the text, that the truth is present with you. Why would a solid, standing, firm Christian need to be reminded of this stuff again and again? The truth is, those who are mature in the faith can become complacent. I know many a believer who is sitting on their laurels. They're pointing back to some experience that happened to them 50 years ago when they were saved. But they haven't grown one inch in their spiritual life in the last 15, 20 years. They become complacent. So we need constant reminders to move us beyond where we have already been. Notice what Peter says in verse 13. I consider it right. As long as I am in this earthly dwelling, that's tent in some texts, to stir you up by way of reminder. Here he says, as long as I'm with you breathing... I'm going to be coming back to these truths again and again. In fact, I'm going to stir you up. That is to take action. The word is diego, go, diego, D-E-I-G-E-I-R-O in the Greek. And it means to stir up, to awaken, to arouse, to wake up from the sleep. There's some Christians who are sleeping. I've seen some of you sleeping before. You need to be stirred up, awakened, aroused. Do you remember just the last week, if you were here, what Peter said about some of the believers? They were useless. They weren't bearing fruit. They were asleep at the wheel. So wake up! Did I wake you up? Heath, you awake? All right. The very same verb, stir up, is used in John 6. Do you remember when the apostles were out on the Sea of Galilee and the storm came? The winds and the seas were stirred up. Truth is, we tend to go to sleep when hearing the same stuff again and again. We take for granted the truth that's found in the Word of God. We forget. We don't remember. I can remember the lyrics, like I said, to rock songs but I find it hard to remember the word of God. Peter reminds them, his readers, he knows he will soon be laying, verse 14, he knows he will be soon laying aside his earthly dwelling, there's that word again, tent, in some texts, and that it is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. It's been 40 years since the Lord told Peter that he would die a martyr's death at the end of John chapter 21. But here he says, the Lord has made it clear to me, Christ has made it clear to me that my death is imminent. <coughs> Excuse me. Some have suggested that Peter might have gotten another clear word from God about his death being imminent, but we don't find that in the Bible, so I, I, I'm kind of skeptical on that. I don't believe he received further communication from God. What I believe is reading his own circumstances. Here he is. You know where he's at, right? He's in jail. He's incarcerated in Rome, and Titus is about to have him executed. 
Don't need much to read the tea leaves, do you? So he wrote this epistle under time pressure. He knew he was about to die. He wasn't writing them any really any new spiritual truths. He was just reminding them of what he had already shared with them in his life. I'm just about to lay down my dwelling, my earthly dwelling. Maybe he has in mind here Bedouins. They had these big tents. If you go to Israel with us, you'll see some of them. And they fold them up and they move from place to place. He's folding up his tent and he's changing location because the Roman government is about to take his life. Essentially, Peter is saying that this is my last word and testament to you. So pay close attention to what I say. Look at me at verse 15. I will also be diligent, there's that word that we looked at last week, that any time after my departure, you will be able to recall these things to mind. Here again is in verse 5, the Greek word spadazio, which means to be diligent, is used. Believers are to be eager, to make every effort to remember these things, to memorize them, to meditate upon them, to know them. Interestingly, he speaks here of his death as a departure. That's not a word that's often used in Scripture to talk about death. It's a, a word that you're very familiar with. The Greek word is exodos. And I don't think Peter was being or trying to be cute by using the word departure. It was the way that he thought about his death. He didn't think of his death as an end to his existence, but as a departure. Remember the Jews departed from Egypt? They made an exodus, right? Peter says, I'm making my departure. I'm making my exodus from this life. It means you're going from one place to another place, not to a grave, to a lack of existence, or to some cloud in the sky where you play a violin. Just as Israel departed from Egypt and went through the wilderness and entered into the promised land, so Peter is making a departure, a move from one place to another. In the back of his mind is an event that overshadows all of this that he had experienced in his life. We call it the transfiguration, where he saw Jesus. He saw the Lord Jesus with Moses and Elijah together speaking. Do you remember that? It's in all three of the synoptic gospels. That's how important it is. Jesus said to them, to Elijah and Moses, that he was about to make his, do you remember? Departure. His exodus from this world to be with his father. Peter's end was not here. He was making a departure. It was really a new beginning. He was going to another place. This is a wonderful contrast with what we just learned last week in verse 11. If you can look back in your Bible there in verse 11, you'll see what I'm talking about. you recall that he described the believer's entrance into the kingdom of God in verse 11. 
But before the believer can make his entrance into the kingdom of God, he must make an exodus from this world. So there must be a going out before there can be a going in. If Peter had to use a theme song for his life at this point in time, he might have used that old grand funk railroad song from the 70s, I'm getting closer to my home. Rocky would have appreciated that, but he's not here. Peter was confident, so confident about his future that it was the reason for his writing to, the, to encourage these people to grow spiritually. He was confident that he was making his departure to a new home based upon this experience called the transfiguration where he saw the power and the presence of the Lord. And he also saw the Lord change physically in his appearance. He could testify that the kingdom was coming and that you would be changed because he saw the Lord there changed. He saw Elijah there changed. He saw Moses there changed. He could testify to what he saw, what he heard, and what he experienced. He saw the incarnate word of God at the transfiguration. Notice in verse 16, he asserts that he and the two apostles that were with him, James and John, saw and heard all these same things. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That is awesome, is it not? I wish you guys could get excited. How about if he scored a touchdown? Okay, I better jump up and run around. The Seahawks won. Great. This should excite you. Peter says to remember these things I've taught you about the transfiguration. Not some cleverly devised tales. That word that's translated here is cleverly devised tales can be also translated as myth. Or fables. You see, people back then were used to myths and fables. When you went to grammar school or middle school, you learned a lot of these myths and fables about Greek mythology. Remember? Roman mythology. <clears throat> That's where the biblical hermeneutic that I keep driving into your heads because I repeat it over and over and over again is so important. To have a biblical hermeneutic to interpret all of the scriptures consistently is so important because it will lead you to the truth rather than astray. We must rightly divide the word of truth. Peter affirms that he's not giving them tales, myths, or fables, but he's telling them what he had seen with his own eyes, heard with his own ears, and experienced in his own life. Unfortunately, in the past hundred years or so, modern critical scholarship has turned the biblical accounts that we treasure in the Old and the New Testament into nothing more than stories. Don't ever call biblical truth stories. If you do, I'm going to come and cut your tongue out. That's a joke. Our visitors from Kentucky are wondering, who is this nut? They're not stories. Stories are made up stuff. These are true biblical accounts. They happened. But you see, the words of the modernists try to convey that the Bible is nothing more than a bunch of hooey. The critical scholars insist that they are doing nothing more than demythologizing the Bible. 
with their critical scholarship. Jesus didn't say that. Take your pen and line it out. That didn't happen. Just take your pen and line that out. Oh, get your scissors, cut that page out. Just their name, critical scholar, should scare you. Well, back in the early 20th century, these critical scholars began to pressure churches, theologians, people in the church, to admit that the Bible was nothing more than a bunch of fables, myths, and tales. Religious dogma. This was readily accepted by most of the liberal denominations, but thank God it was rejected by those who are extremists, those right-wing fundamentalists. Such biblical accounts that were called myths were the creation. God didn't create the world in seven days. Well, six days and one he rested on. No, no, God couldn't do that, could he? Not much of a God if he couldn't. He had to take thousands and millions and billions of Right? The fall, oh, these are just stories, Jonah. They're never swallowed by a big fish. It's just stories to tell us something about God. They argued that these myths were used by men to teach us about the Almighty. They argued that if the church didn't see the Bible in this way, the mythologizing of it, we would, learn, we would lose out to the alternate accounts that were being offered by anthropology and cosmology. In other words, Darwinism. But what does the Bible say about itself? The Bible says, right here in this text, you don't have to go anywhere else, Peter says, I'm not teaching you myths, fables, or cleverly devised tales to fool people. I'm telling you the truth, the truth, the truth. Listen now, it's essential for you to approach the scriptures from a literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic or you will end up, just like the Calvinists and all the Reformers, allegorizing the text. Well, this is what I think it means. It can't just mean what it says. we got to make it mean something that it doesn't say. Why is he yelling? Because it's important. You recall what Paul taught? Listen to what Paul... You talk about being syncopated in harmony with one another. Peter and Paul, two type A personalities, by the way, Paul warned believers that there was a time coming in which Christians would not stand for the preaching and teaching of true doctrine. I think he's talking about today. They would turn away from the truth and turn aside to... Myths! There it is! Paul warned Timothy not not to pay attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men because they will turn you away from the truth. The truth. The Word of God. The Scriptures. Holy Bible. Not some dumb story made up by somebody somewhere, someplace, that I don't know. We see this happening today. Just as it was happening in the first century. Look at the lady behind me. 
She's famous. She's on all the TV and television stations. Maybe you've never heard of her. But she teaches that the Bible is just a myth and there's a hundred of these people. Even the Jews have abandoned their sacred scriptures for man-made substitutes. Kabbalah? Have you ever heard of that? Most Jews today believe in Darwinism rather than the seven days of creation. So what was the big myth? The fable? The tale that Peter and the apostles were accused of spreading? It's right here in the text. It tells you. The second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. They said it was just a made-up story. That Jesus wasn't coming back as judge and king. The false teachers accused Peter and the others of spreading human event invention rather than truth. They labeled the scriptures as make-believe fiction or a whopper. They claimed the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of his coming kingdom, were just invented stories. Remember my favorite one is that Christians, when they had the Lord's Supper, they were eating each other's flesh. Remember that one? Oh, that's a good one. I like that one. But Peter, praise God, never backs down. He continues to proclaim, we've made known to you the power and the coming parousia of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, you could say that's the theme of this text. The coming of the Lord, the parousia. That's so important, a biblical word from the Greek that it's become a synonym for the second coming. Now listen, it's very important that as we read this text, we distinguish between the written word of God and the incarnate word of God. Jesus in the flesh. Both are authoritative. Both are absolute truth. In the incarnate word of God, we have Jesus speaking the truth in the flesh, living the truth in the flesh. In the word of God, we have it put forth in phrases and thoughts that we can understand and apply to our own lives. Both of these vehicles reveal the truth of God about himself. You see, our faith in Jesus doesn't rest upon some cleverly devised tales by someone 2,000 years ago or ancient myths, myths some seer made up. We believe in God's truth revealed to us through Christ and his word. Not myths, fables, or tales, but the eyewitness testimony of the men who lived it. Why do we know this? How do we know this? Peter says, we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. Eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's asserting point blank that the apostles were present when Jesus did miraculous things. When he taught people, when he preached, they saw and they heard the apostles did and personally witnessed these events. Now, back in the day, there were no cameras, the ubiquitous cell phones recording every event that takes place on planet Earth today. To establish the truth in the court of law, the prosecuting attorney would always ask the question, what did you see? You see, eyewitnesses were the key to establishing the truth of any event in an ancient court. And there were always two to three witnesses required. That's why Peter declares, we were eyewitnesses. Because they're required by the law of Moses to establish truth. John said much the same thing in his first epistle. Oh, so now we got John in here, who's also in harmony with what Peter is saying. We got Peter, Paul, and John all saying the same stuff. John says in his first epistle, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, listen to this. What was from the beginning, 
What we heard, what we'd seen with our own eyes, what we looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the incarnate Jesus Christ, and the life was manifested that we had seen and testified and proclaimed to you was the eternal life, which was the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. We write these things so that our joy may be made complete. To refute what the apostles said, to say that they were peddling myths and truths and fables, was to go against their clear testimony written in the word of God. Peter gives three proofs that they weren't peddling untruths. They had heard, they had seen, they were present, and they testified of the truth of this. So his defense of the doctrine of the second coming is rooted in his personal experience. That is, he had seen the majesty of Jesus Christ when he was present on the Mount of Transfiguration. Here we find the first witness to the majesty of Jesus Christ. The first witness to that is not the apostles, as you would have thought, but in verse 17 it says, He, that is Jesus, received honor from where? Honor and glory from God the Father. When an utterance was made from the heavens about his majestic glory, do you remember what the Father said? It's right here. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The Father gave testimony. He was the first witness to the incarnated Jesus Christ. Here here Peter proclaims that Jesus received honor from his Father. That is, an exalted status as his beloved Son. And he was given brilliance or glory. His visage was changed. He was bright and white and shiny. The Father is the first witness to the Son's majestic glory. That is the compound word, megalopres, which you can put that up now, which is used in other texts and understood as a bright cloud. The bright cloud overshadowed the Lord and Moses and Elijah and the three apostles on the top of the mountains when Jesus was transfigured. And Peter says that there on Mount Hermon, they saw his majestic glory. They saw the bright cloud. So important that this is found in all three of the synoptic gospels. The three apostles, James, John, and Peter, All saw it. They watched it. Along with two of the Old Testament saints who were already transfigured. Remember? Elijah and Moses shown as well. They saw what they saw. Now Moses was a representative of the law. Elijah was a representative of the prophets. And their clothes and faces shown because they had been transfigured along with Jesus. This so overwhelmed Peter. Big mouth Peter that he said this, Lord, is it good for us to be here? Should we skedaddle? Or if you wish, we'll, we'll build three shelters, for one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and we'll worship you. At the exact moment those words were coming out of his mouth, the scripture tells us the majestic cloud of glory, the visible sign of the Father's presence overshadowed all three, and the voice could be heard. This is my son, my beloved son. 
But we might ask, how does the transfiguration argue for the second coming of the Lord? Well, you got your pen? Here it is. The transfiguration is a picture, a glimpse, a taste of the kingdom that is to come. That is what Peter and James and John experienced. The celestial glory of Jesus Christ on earth when he reigns, along with all the Old Testament saints who have already gone home to be the glory, there we will meet them when he reigns for a thousand years. This is true. Daniel said the same thing. Way back in Daniel chapter 7, hundreds of years before this, he said in 714, To him, him is capitalized, meaning Jesus Christ, to him was given dominion, glory, a kingdom, that all peoples, all nations, and men of every language might serve him. That's the only place I know it's going to happen is in the kingdom of God. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Praise God. The transfiguration is a preview for us of the coming power and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ reigning from Jerusalem. Anybody want to go pick out a new house? You want to go with me? You're going there, says the scripture. That's where you're going to live. Don't you want to go there and find out what it's going to be like? We're supposed to move to Virginia sometime in the future. The first thing I did there was go look for a house. I found one right next to my daughter. I want a house in Jerusalem right next to the kingdom of God, dwelling on the temple spot, right next to where Jesus is, don't you? A preview of what is to come. In Matthew's account, and I use this one, it's said in all three of the synoptics, that's how important it is. Listen to this. This follows right after, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Matthew writes in chapter 16, verse 28, quoting the Lord Jesus. Truly, truly, I say to you, there are some who are standing here who will not taste death until the Son of Man comes in his kingdom. Huh? When are these guys going to get a taste of the kingdom? They got it at the transfiguration. They tasted the kingdom. They saw the kingdom. They saw Jesus transfigured. What he will look like when he rules and reigns in Jerusalem. Now the Gnostic teachers claim that this is just a myth. Just a fable made up by men. And yet Israel also experienced a transfiguration themselves. It too was on a holy mountain. Do you remember? Jesus was transfigured on Mount Hermon. Moses was transfigured at Mount Sinai. He came down from the mountain. Do you remember what he looked like? His head glowed. It was so bright that people couldn't look at him. He had to put a, he had to put a hood over his head. Do you remember? He was transfigured because he was in the presence of God. A glorious bright light. I believe Peter is juxtaposing his experience here on the mountain with Jesus and that of Moses on Mount Sinai. Now the second witness. The first witness was God the Father. The second witness is obviously James, John, and Peter. Look with me at verse 18. We 
ourselves heard the utterance made from heaven which we were when we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, any Jew looking at that would go, oh, is that Mount Sinai? No. It was Mount Hermon. What a name for a mountain, Hermon. They could have come up with a better name, couldn't they? Mount Scott. That, that would have been an excellent choice. Would have finally got my name in the Bible. My daughter says she won't name one of her kids after me because it's not biblical. I don't find your name in the Bible anywhere. All right, all right. So maybe we should redact it, get the critical scholars to put it in there. What do you, th- what do you say? Be a good idea, don't you? Three testimonies, having heard God, the Father, say to his Son. That's the greatest defense that you can make for the truth of Scripture. Now, Peter will close this text with three verses which argue for the origin. The origin, not the interpretation of the Bible, but the origin of the Word of God. He will say that the scripture that is given to us, that's been handed down to us, the sure word of God, is based on the illumination of the word of God by the Holy Spirit. He shows us that it was the direct revelation of God by the Holy Spirit and that the inspiration of the word of God came through the Holy Spirit. Let's look at these details in verse 19. So we have the prophetic word made sure to which you do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. This is filled with so much stuff. I can, I don't, can we stay till like 2 o'clock? Would that be okay? This is speaking of the illumination of the scriptures being like a lamp in a dark place, like the morning star arising. Peter here is making the comparison of the prophecies of the Old Testament, those in the past, and the truths that are being taught by the apostles in the present day, the Holy Scriptures that we call the New Testament. He's comparing those together as being sure. The prophetic word then speaks of all of Scripture, the Old Testament and the New Testament, the major prophets, the minor prophets, the law and the writings, and including the updates, the writings of the New Testament. Previously, I read to you just a minute ago from the first four verses from John's first epistle. I didn't read you the fifth verse. I'm going to read it to you now. This is the message which we have heard from him, H-I-M, capital H, and announced to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Pay attention to the light. It's shining in a dark place. We're waiting for the dawn, for the morning star to rise. Wow, the pictures here are unbelievable, are they not? Daniel, Zechariah, and all the other Old Testament prophets predicted the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in power and glory. The event on Mount Hermon, the transfiguration, confirmed the accuracies accuracies of these prophecies. The writing of the apostles confirmed and expanded on what the Old Testament prophet says. He now says he compares, if you will, the world that is a dark place 
Dallas, Louisiana, Afghanistan, Iraq. The world is a dark place filled with sin, corruption, and death that will be displayed by the light of God in Jesus Christ and in his word. The word is always compared to a lamp, a light. The Greek word used here is lyncho, L-Y-C-H-N-O, and it describes an oil-burning lamp that shines in the darkness. The psalmist wrote about this, as you know, you've memorized it, Psalm 119, 109, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So the word is a light that shines in a dark place. Jesus himself said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Peter says, pay attention to this. Pay attention to this. Pay attention. The light is shining in the word of God. You do well to pay attention to a lamp shining in a dark place. Unfortunately, in our world today, our dark world, people are more experience-oriented than they are word-centered. Many believers focus on what happens to them, whether right or wrong, rather than the truth of the word of God. They validate their spiritual life by their experiences rather than the truth of God. Peter states clearly that the only sure way of knowing him and his will is in the written revelation of God, a lamp shining in a dark place. Our experience really doesn't reveal much, does it? You never know where your experience comes from. It could come from the evil one rather than God himself. But notice the hope that is found here. Notice the hope that is found here. But the day is coming. It saddens me that believers choose to walk by the murky light of their experience rather than the sure light of his word. The day is coming. The light is coming, says Peter. When Jesus, the light of the world, will enter into this place like a morning star. The Bible gives us hope for the future. That day, by the way, is a technical term for the day of the Lord. The morning star is another name for Jesus. The phrase morning star is a simile, if you will, to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we went to Israel last time, uh, Carol and Ron can testify to this, and Sue, I believe, was there too. We sat in a dark room of a first century house. Do you remember that? Yeah. And he had one little window in the top of the house. In that dark little room was a lamp that sort of lit up the room as best it could. But that paled in comparison to the morning sun which would come through that window and light up the whole house. Someday soon, on that day, the morning star is going to arrive and the light of the world will be present with us. Until that time, we only have the light of the word of God. Now, the Greek word that's used here describes Jesus and his coming again as the morning star is phosphorus. <laughs> that's a great word, isn't it? We get that word phosphorus that we bomb people with, that blows up, you know, and the flame goes everywhere. Can't put it out. 
A new age is coming and will dawn on that day when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. For he will light up the world and he will dispel sin. He will dispel pain and rejection. We read in Numbers chapter 24, and I didn't write the verse, but this prophetic word from Moses which says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise in Israel. The second coming. The return of the Lord Jesus Christ to rule and reign over his people. And then in Revelation, John the Revelator says this. Through the Spirit. To the church at Theatra. I will give him the morning star. That's awesome. Then a little bit later. Chapter 20, same book. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root, the descendant of David, the bright morning star. There it is. Jesus said this bright and morning star rises in your heart. Back in our text. What does that mean? I believe when you read the Bible, you have an existential experience. You have an encounter with God of very God in your heart and mind. At some point, each and every one of us as believers has read the Word of God and had one of those, Judy, aha moments. The Lord breaks through the darkness of this world and reveals the light of truth in our heart and minds. The truth that we need to know to live godly in this present world as we await his coming return. The truth of God breaking through in the consciousness of man is an aha moment. That's the process that the Holy Spirit takes the illumination of the word of God, the revelation of the word of God, and he makes it true in our hearts by applying it. Now in verse 20 we see the revelation of the word of God. This shows us the divine origin of scripture. Don't make this verse into something talking about how to properly interpret the Bible because that's just not accurate. But no, first of all, says Peter, in other words, this is really important, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Some texts say private. That's not in the Greek text. Paul, uh, Peter prioritizes by saying, pay attention to this. This is really important. I've been teaching you on the importance of Scripture and I'm not listening to human myths and stories and tales, but listen to the sacred writings of God. 31 times in the New Testament, the word Scripture is used. Peter says so twice in this book. Here he says that Scripture is the revelation, the self-revelation of God in written form. The Scriptures originate with God Almighty. The Scriptures are God telling us about himself, not human beings writing about what they think God is. We get thrown off the trail when we read that word interpretation used here. But the Bible doesn't really say that in the original text. These verses tell us how we got the Bible. How God used men to bring us his sacred word. It didn't matter their background, their professions, their temperaments. He conveyed through them as his instruments, his will and his word. He used men guided by the Holy Spirit of God. So Peter, in essence, is again answering the, 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 the 
accusation that these were devised myths, tales, or stories because they denied, the critics did, the divine origin of the word. They argued such writings were self-serving and made up. That's why that word private is so important to be left out because it's not in the original text. The Greek phrase used here, you can see it on the screen behind me, is ideus epistolesos. And it has been much debated in the past. However, the conflict is usually around, surrounding around the English translations that we use. The first portion of the phrase, that first portion is used by Peter five times in the same various epistle and it's never interpreted in the same way. Five times it's consistently used in verses 16 and 22 of chapter 2 and 3, 16 and 17 of chapter 3 in the following way. I'll tell you what it says there in those. It's translated as its own, their own, or your own. Five different times. So the standard is that rather than its own interpretation. In other words, this text interprets by, not by itself, but by in harmony with the rest of the word of God. The Bible is being used, or the Bible should be used, to interpret itself, to comment on itself. No one scripture is a private interpretation. No one scripture should stand on its own. It's not to be translated in isolation. It is subject to all the other prophetic passages in the Bible in order for us to grasp its fullest meaning. Try to understand, as some have, that every individual has their own private interpretation of every verse. That's just silly. That's just plain silly. Do you ever go to a Bible study where they say, well, I think it means this. Been there? Or another person, oh, I think it says this to me. That's just nonsense. The Bible only means one thing. What the original author intended it to say. That's why we must use the biblical hermeneutic, the literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic of interpretation. Now, the second word used here, epiliosos, the word here is a noun rather than a verb. A verb would be to interpret. It's the only time this word is used in the New Testament. So how should we understand it? This verse speaks not of the interpretation, rather it speaks of the revelation, the source of the scriptures. Now let me say a word about the evangelical concept of the priesthood of the believer. That is usually brought into the discussion here of this text, which talks about in some English versions as the private interpretation. This is usually understood to be the spirit-given ability to interpret the Bible for itself, oneself. However, biblically, the phrase that is used, the priesthood of believers, is not found in the New Testament. It's not found in the Bible. That phrase is extrapolated from this text, and, or from the text in 1 Peter, which speaks of Christians as being living stones. Plural. Not singular. So it's not a private interpretation. It's not the priesthood of the believer to privately interpretate the Bible and think, say what they think it means. 
It's talking about the corporate church, the living stones built on the foundation of Jesus Christ and the apostles. The church has the right to interpret the Bible correctly. Most problems in the church begin with lone wolves who think that they're smarter than everybody else, that they have authority. But the Bible says that we're to have a multiplicity of counselors. The church was given pastors, missionaries, and believers, not just the priesthood of a believer. It's the priesthood of believers. We're all priests together, are we not? So the phrase that's used here to indicate that it's one, the priesthood of the believer, I think is a a very wrong concept. And I can tell you where it came from. It came from American Christians who think the Bill of Rights is more important than the Bible itself. No part of the Bible is left to anyone's private interpretation. It means to be subject along to the church of Jesus Christ and the way the church has come to understand it. That's why I object to people who pull one verse out of the Bible and use it. They try to build doctrines upon one verse, right? If you can't get your doctrine out of the whole body of Scripture, then you better look for another Bible. You better look for some more verses somewhere. Otherwise, you're going to be with those people who go to Mark 16 and say you have to handle snakes, right? It's in the Bible. And it's of my private own interpretation, so I say that we should all handle snakes. Mark, you want to come on up here? I got one in the basket. Bud? I think a really good illustration of the difference is this. The riding on a four-wheeled vehicle versus riding on a unicycle. You ever seen a person riding on a unicycle? One, one wheel? You'll notice that they twist back and forth. You know, they're trying to keep their balance maneuvering. I saw one video online of a guy on a, a clown. He was up on a high wire on his unicycle, and he fell off. The bike suddenly shot out from underneath him. He fell backwards and he hit the ground. It was a terrible sight. It wasn't pretty. I think a lot of believers are like that clown. They base all that they believe on one single verse because of the priesthood of the believer and because it's of my own private interpretation when that's not what it says at all. It's talking about the revelation of God. So the best thing we can do is retranslate that text from the Greek into English by focusing on the origin of the word of God and not its understanding. Now in verse 21, we see this process takes place. The illumination, the revelation, takes place through the Holy Spirit. So we have the inspiration of the word of God through the Holy Spirit. Look with me there. No prophecy was ever made up by an act of human will, but Men, some say holy men, moved by the Holy Spirit who spoke from God. Again, the word prophecy here is to be understood as a general term to all divine revelation, Old and New Testament. This is a key verse on understanding the inspiration of Scripture. Our culture today is busy destroying the authority of the Bible. 
They call it divisive. They call it homophobic. They call it non-scientific. I call it holy from God. That's why Lacey Chapel stands firm upon the verbal, plenary, and the inerrant inspiration of the word of God. Verbal inspiration. By that I mean every word in the original Greek text was penned by human writers as they were led by God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son. Most of us know 2 Timothy 3.16, which says this, All Scripture is inspired. God breathed and given to mankind. All Scripture is inspired by God. Literally, breathed out of his mouth. Paul wrote about this to the Corinthians, saying this, Things which we speak, that is the apostles, are not words taught by human wisdom, not fables or myths, but those taught by the Spirit, as he, capital H, combines spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. The Lord didn't send down to men a holy outline. The Lord didn't give them bullet points for their basic ideas. He didn't say, just go ahead and flesh this out the way that you want. No, these words came from Scripture, and they wrote them as the Holy Spirit led. Plenary means the entire Bible. Every idea, concept were chosen and superintended over by the Holy Spirit. If you don't know these things, you should be writing them down. These are so important to your beliefs as a Christian. Every word inspired, the whole Bible inspired, and that it's inerrant. There are no errors in the Bible. If somebody tells you an error, there's an error in the Bible, just laugh at them. That's what I do. I can't help it. It's so funny. It's so ignorant. Oh, there are... There's errors in the Bible. Jesus said the mustard seed is the smallest seed. That can be demolished so easily, it's unbelievable. There are no errors in the original text. There are no errors in doctrine, in history, in science, in chronology, or anything you can think of, any category you can. They're all true. Why? Because God used holy men moved by the Holy Spirit to record them. Now, this wasn't dictated to them. God did use their personalities, but he superintended over them. These were not super-duper saints. They were men set apart by God to write his word. They were inspired. God breathed out of his mouth into the very minds the truth that he wanted them to write. The Greek word that's used here is translated born along or carried. It's the same word that's used in the book of Acts to speak of a ship being carried or moved along by the wind. In this case, the holy men of God were moved, born along like a ship being empowered by the wind. The Holy Spirit was the wind in their sails. Yet they were involved in the process. They weren't taking dictation. This wasn't some kind of ecstatic utterance where they didn't know what they were saying. They were used by God. The lamination of man and God together took place as God used their styles, their personalities, to accomplish his person purposes. Just think about it. Paul was a university-trained graduate. Spoke in the best Greek, the most polished Greek. Peter was a 
a dumb fisherman, if you will, from the Sea of Galilee, never trained in the scriptures. You can go on and on about all these different men, and God used them all to accomplish his will and purposes. Vastly different men, vastly different personalities, vastly different skills to get the job done. Now, last year, we went to Greece and Turkey. When we were in Greece, we visited the Acropolis and examined the Parthenon. One thing you will notice if you look at the Parthenon is that there are no parallel lines anywhere. There's no straight lines. Not a straight line in the whole building. If you stand and look down at the foundation, there's a big hump in the middle of it. You've got to get really close to see it. The Greeks had learned the lesson that the human eye never sees anything straight. So they made these changes and dynamics so that when you stood off from afar, everything looked right to the human eyes. The point is, we can't trust our human eyes, our ears, but we can trust the Word of God. Because the Word of God is God-breathed, God-inspired, written by men who were moved by the Spirit. One-third of the Bible is prophecy, and we dare not avoid it or ignore it. It's not to be treated as like some kind of holy speculation, but it will be literally fulfilled in the time to come. The prophets weren't peddling myths or fables or tales. They were sharing the divine word of God. Illuminated, revealed, and inspired by the Holy Spirit. Given to us so that we might live godly in this present world. Let me close with just a few applications from this text. The Bible, we need to be reminded of it daily. All the time. Over and over again. So that we don't forget. One of the greatest truths that we need to be reminded of is that Jesus Christ is coming again a second time. It's really, really, really important, important, important. It should motivate us to live a holy life and to be his witnesses. So let me ask you, are you in the word of God daily? Are you in the word of God consistently? Every day? Every day? Every day? If not, you will never be what God intends you to be. The Bible is an inspired word, and it will transform your life and change you into the person that God wants you to be. And that is like his beloved son, whom he loves. Let us pray together. Father God, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for the inspired word of God. We thank you, Lord, that you love us, that you care for us, and that you gave it to us so that we might live the Christ-like life. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.